Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. And what a lineup of guests we've got today, and indeed, what a novel. We're discussing her 13th novel, A Fairly Honourable Defeat, which was published in 1970. So we're celebrating its 50th anniversary and reflecting on its importance. A novel of both comedy and tragedy, I think. It was released to rather mixed reviews at the time, but I think it's now seen as one of the most important works of her middle period. And joining me to discuss the novel are three wonderful guests, all of whom I think rate this as one of her very best novels. Um, joining me today um, is uh, Peter J. Conradi. Hello, Peter. Hi. Um, member of the Royal, um, um, the, uh, Royal Literary Society, um, published Murdoch's authorised biography of Iris Murdoch, A Life in 2001, um, a study of her novels, um, The Saint and the Artist, which is an absolute essential, I think, for any um, Murdoch bookshelf. Uh, an edition of her essays, Existentialists and Mystics, uh, that came out in 97. Again, it's an absolute essential, I think. And he's also written studies of the Welsh March at the Bright Helm of God. Of, um, he's also written Becoming, of Becoming Buddhist in Going Buddhist. And he's also written Frank Thompson's biography. And his memoir, Family Business, um, which addresses his discipleship of Dame Iris, and indeed much else besides, came out last year. And um, the biographer Michael Holroyd uh, said that it was a mingling of charm, comedy, confessional, confessional and inevitable tragedy, all beautifully orchestrated. I can only congratulate you on a beautiful series of stories, so well worth getting hold of. My next guest is the author Garth Greenwell. Hello, Garth. Hi, hello. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. He's the author of What Belongs to You, uh, which won the British Book Award for Debut of the Year and was shortlisted for the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. And his new book of fiction, Cleanness, was published in April and described by the New York Times as an instant classic. And it's had wonderful reviews right across the board um, in the States and indeed in the UK and indeed, I'm sure, uh, further afield. He also wrote the new introduction to A Fairly Honourable Defeat for the uh, 2019 Centenary Edition uh, published by Vintage. And he's a uh, 2020 Guggenheim Fellow and he lives in Iowa where he's speaking to us uh, from today. And uh, my final guest is uh, Catherine Taylor. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Hi. She's a freelance writer, editor and critic, uh, former publisher at the Folio Society and deputy director of English Pen as well. And her essay on Iris Murdoch's novel, The Black Prince, was published in the Literary Quarterly, the Brixton Review of Books in 2018. And Catherine was also a panellist for uh, the, um, the Cambridge Literary Festival centenary celebration of, um, of Iris um, last year as well. So thank you all so much for being part of this podcast. Uh, Peter, I'd like to start with you, if I may. Um, you describe the novel in um, The Saint and the Artist as brilliant and decisive masterpiece um, and in which she enters a new artistic maturity in which plot and characters are equally balanced. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your first reading of the novel, what it felt like to read it in 1970. And um, also, I think you were then um, corresponded uh, with Dame Iris after that. Yes, I would be happy to. Um... I was a postgraduate and already a great fan of, of her work and would buy the novel on the day it came out, as it were. And um, it was gripping and compelling. All her novels are, to some degree, gripping and compelling. People who don't like her sometimes say, well, I was gripped and I was compelled, but I couldn't remember a single thing that had happened in the novel when I put it down. Uh, this one was different and is different. Uh, it contains a cast of characters, 
each of whom to different degrees is memorable, believable, interesting, and seems to exist in a world outside the book. I like to think of Morgan, Hilda, and Peter living in the, in San Francisco with, with, the, with a resident psychiatrist. <laughs> um, it's um, a very weird novel. I, I think I was telling you the other day that Lorna Sage, who was a great friend and teacher, always recommended this novel to people who wanted to try her out. It has a very slow first half and a very rapid and operatic second half. And the first half has a sort of meticulous social and psychological realism um, in which we learn about this world and the different London milieu. Mm. And then the second half, through the operatic plotting of the, the devil in the book, who's called Julius, everything gets blown apart. And a lot of it is utterly fantastical. Um, scenes such as the one on the rear cover, Catherine's just reminded us of the first edition, of Simon and Axel meeting through falling in love with a statue in Athens, mm, the boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, by the way, 1970, was, although homosexuality had been decriminalized, there was still, I was coming out at that time, there was still plentiful police entrapment, plenty of harassment if you went cruising like Simon does. Um, but this novel has as its heart, I, I hope that Garth will tell us more about this, a completely convincing and compelling um, gay marriage, in effect. It's the one relationship that survives um, the firestorm of the plot. And it's very moving. Um, I suppose there's among various fantastical scenes are a scene where Julius cuts up Morgan's clothes, uh, a scene of nephew aunt incest, and above all, a scene which we could come back to, I hope, where two hidden characters listen to two others behind the portico of a of a fictional museum, uh, resembling the pleated bar scenes in Much Ado. Uh, in Troth Night, Fabian says, if this were played upon a stage, I would condemn it as an improbable fiction. That's a joke that works on stage and it's audacious to try to transfer it into realistic fiction. There's a lot more that, I could, be, that could be said, but maybe I'll just, I'd like to read from a letter um, not that long after the book came out, I co-edited the very first gay magazine in the UK and wrote to Iris, Dame Iris, inviting her to contribute. She replied that she had mixed feelings about it. And this is what she wrote. One does not want to increase the cliquish secret society aspect of being homosexual. One would aim at a situation where homosexuals felt ordinary and not special, though I know this may be far off. On the other hand, a periodical may help people feel a good deal more part of a general scene, and thus a good deal less lonely. 
and I think the, the way she includes and positions gay characters in her fiction generally, and especially in this one, is very, she does it as something unremarkable, something ordinary. Um, that was revolutionary and it was life-changing for many of us. Um, and the fact that she didn't want gay ghettos, uh, I think is also sort of apparent. There's a huge amount more to say, but I want to hear from Garth and Catherine. Yes, of course. Thank you, Peter, for um, introducing us to that, that element of the novel, which, um, as you rightly mentioned, I mean, she, um, she has uh, gay characters um, very early on in her fiction in the 50s, of course. We can't, uh, you know, don't want to forget that. But I think this, this novel in particular is where she explores um, the, gr the greatest um, social and almost familial um, uh, relationships that they, they have. It, it seems much more expansive to me. And Garth, I wonder, um, coming to you now, um, when you were first reading this novel, whether that's something that you experienced as well. Oh, I mean, absolutely it was. Um, and everything that Peter just said seems to me, um, you know, spot on. Um, I first read Iris Murdoch actually in a period of real crisis about 20 years ago um, when I was extremely unhappy in a PhD program and felt that you know, I had kind of lost all sense of what I wanted my life to be. Um, and, I, you know, I now, I can't remember which book I read first, but somehow, for some reason, I read, I actually probably read The Sovereignty of Good first, um, and then just sped through the novels and read over the course of maybe six or seven months, um, all of them. And, uh, you know, from that time, I remember reading A Fairly Honorable Defeat um, and thinking that it really was something very special among her novels. And, you know, I would argue very strongly that I think this is Iris Murdoch's greatest novel. Um, not her most perfect novel, which I think is The Bell, but um, kind of her most humanly compelling novel and the novel in which sort of various elements of, of what we might think of as Iris Murdoch's um, sort of style and her central prior preoccupations and what, you know, and I think the unsuccessful novels can seem kind of like a shtick. Um, here they feel fully formed and they feel um, really, you know, remarkably dramatically successful. Um, you know, it certainly is true that something that thrilled me in Iris Murdoch's work um, was the plentiful and humane representation of queer characters um, at a time when that was vanishingly rare in English language fiction. No. Um, and I, you know, I do think this book, um, I mean, this book, one of the reasons that this book was so compelling to me and just um, seemed really revolutionary to me is its representation of, as Peter said, a gay marriage. And not just, you know, and a gay marriage that is not idealized, that is flawed, that has problems. You know, I think one of the wonderful things in the novel is the way that um, you know, much of the strength of Axel and Simon's relationship comes from the fact that they do not idealize that relationship in the way that Hilda and Rupert do. Um, but also the extent to which it's the queer marriage in the novel that is allowed to become the center of a moral world. You know, I mean, if this, like many of Shakespeare's comedies, sort of has a kind of world or a constellation 
that is, you know, uh, the center of which is blown up, a world that is shattered, um, and then kind of a reformation of a new constellation. Um, you know, it seems to me that uh, Simon and Axel are at the heart of that new moral world that is suggested in those final vignettes, or the possibility, I should say, of a moral world, of a new moral arrangement that is suggested by the vignettes at the, with which the novel ends. You know, I also think, I mean, to me, one of the most extraordinary things about the novel is the character of Simon. Um, and one of the many revelations of reading Peter's biography was that as she was drafting the novel, Iris, Iris Murdoch referred to it as the Simon novel. Mm. And that seems right to me, that he is the central character and he's, that he is really the hero of the novel. And Simon is such a curious kind of hero for Iris Murdoch, you know? I mean, he's um, not a philosopher. And not only is he not a philosopher, but he is kind of an anti-philosopher. I mean, he seems of Iris Murdoch's characters remarkably um, free of introspection. And in fact, you know, whereas so many of Iris Murdoch's characters are concerned with depth, I think Simon is almost exclusively concerned with surfaces. And in some ways, you know, um, I love Simon as a queer character because, you know, one feels in the representation no anxiety about the stereotypes of queer male, queer, queer male characters. You know, um, in many ways, Simon embraces faggotry. He embraces many of the stereotypes of gay male culture as Peter mentioned, I mean, he loved or loved before he met Axel. He, he loved to cruise. He loves um, what uh, Axel calls the habits of the tribe of gay men, um, including those habits that um, can appear as a kind of foolishness. He is, I think, uniquely in the novel, utterly free. So he's, a, he's very vain about physical appearances but he's utterly free of a kind of moral vanity. I think singularly among the characters, he is not attached to a sense of himself as good. Um, and I think that is what allows him to be the kind of heroic figure who can finally break Julius's um, enchantment. You know, um, love is probably the deepest theme of all of Iris Murdoch's book, books. And in this book, certainly, you know, all of the characters are struggling with an idea of love and almost all of them, well, with the exception of Julius and Simon, struggle with an idea of, and maybe um, Talus as well, struggle with an idea of love as heroic. Um, you know, I think Rupert at one point conceives of love as a kind of mountain path that he's trying to, you know, climb up in this really quite um, self-aggrandizing way. And Simon doesn't have that. You know, um, for Simon, love is choosing the right tie for his partner. Love is arranging flowers beautifully in the apartment. I mean, love consists not of grand um, quests, but instead of entirely unremarkable and habitual acts of care. And I think, um, you know, the way that Simon conceives of love is the novel's great refutation of Julius's claim about love. And Julius's claim about love is that human beings are essentially finders of substitutes, that the idea that an individual could be lastingly, meaningfully 
significant and kind of um, irreplaceable is what Julius um, insists is not the case. And I think Simon is, is the great counter example of that. Um, for Simon, you know, there are not categories, there are only particulars. And so I think there's a way that he comes to represent in a marvelously, maybe ironic way, a really profound sense of what morality is, that morality is, um, you know, and this is, I think, an argument that Iris Murdoch makes in Sovereignty of Goods, you know, that morality is, in ethical relation to the other, is a kind of vision and not a heroic vision, but instead, um, you know, a kind of daily, unremarkable, habitual seeing of the other. And um, yeah. yeah, I think that's just a, a gorgeous sense of what love is. Yes, I absolutely agree, Garth. I think looking at um, Simon as being representative of some of the elements that Murdoch is um, extolling in The Sovereignty of Good, which of course um, also celebrated its 50th anniversary this year, is um, a really important uh, idea to consider. I think it's also interesting that um, Axel and Simon's relationship isn't self-congratulatory, whereas Rupert and Hilda's, I think, right from the off is. Um, they give themselves all these, these particular treats, of course, the swimming pool um, being one of them. I think the swimming pool is a really interesting um, image in, um, in the novel. And of course, they, they see themselves as very self-satisfied as well at the beginning. And I th obviously that gets tested a great deal. Uh, Catherine, coming to you, what, what is it about this novel that, that speaks to you in particular? Um, is it the, um, this great struggle between um, these, the, the, these figures of, the, of good and evil? Or is it, uh, and, and of course we have set pieces as well in, in the novel. But are there other elements that uh, appeal to you? And I know you've just, um, just reread it. Yeah, I think actually it, I'm so interested to what Garth's just said, and obviously Peter as well, about that, that central relationship with Simon and Axel. Um, I think Simon's probably the most empathetic character um, in, in the novel. Um, when he's amusing at the beginning about his relationship and his sort of um, self-doubt about uh, his, 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 own, um, his own place, perhaps, in the world, uh, he, he says, well, oh, what agony, he says to himself, it is, he thought, to love somebody so much and not to be him. And I think while we get um, instances of that, perhaps in a very superficial way with some of the other characters, they don't uh, ring as true as they do with Simon. Um, my reading of Murdoch, uh, as, as you said, I've just reread Fairly Honourable Defeat. Um, I gulped down most of Murdoch's uh, novels of um, the 60s and 70s when I was a teenager, um, starting with The Flight from the Enchanter, which has a character very similar to um, Julius King and fairly honourable defeat that the the enchanter, the perhaps slightly satanic figure in, in um, of Misha Fox, which I think perhaps Murdoch is putting a little bit more flesh on here with Julius. And reading these novels, uh, which are torrents of feeling, I think perhaps, which hit you when you're, you yourself are discovering who you are as a person. Um, led me to leave them aside for quite a long while and then actually return to them bit by bit um, when I became an adult and now almost as old as the book that we're discussing. Um, one of the characters right at the beginning of A Fairy on Defeat describes um, a farrago of emotion, almost setting the scene for what is, 
is about to unfold. As, as um, Peter and Garth have said, and you said, Miles, um, we open with a very conventional, heterosexual, long-married couple who are very pleased with themselves and have quite a stilted dialogue because actually the way that Murdoch is um, approaching that opening is to um, tell us about other characters through, through Hilda and Rupert. Um, and we can really tell from the beginning that, that everything is not going to be um, comfortable in paradise for much longer. You talked about this beautiful house and the swimming pool, which becomes so central to the plot. And yet, even then, there are these hints where um, Hilda is going into the from brightness of the garden to the darkness of the house. Constantly throughout the book, we see shadows and people are described as not being as blurred, as hazy. There are instances uh, of hallucination, I would call them perhaps synesthesia, experiences of synesthesia in the book. There are contrasts of this incredible um, situation where the supposedly Christ-like Talis lives in this unbelievable squalor, uh, compared with these very um, more beautiful houses and apartments of some of the other characters. And there are these constant devices of plays within plays, I think of setups within setups, with inanimate objects and nonverbal communication, uh, such as letters, which are often impulsively torn up before they're read. Uh, phone calls, uh, phones which don't work, um, which are a crucial point um, in the book, such as in The Black Prince, which uh, was published a couple of years later, one of the big plot sequences hinges on, um, one of the, the sort of denouements of that, of that story hinges on um, a letter. Here in Fellow Honourable Defeat, it hinges on a telephone call that can't be made. So I think what Murdoch does is she absorbs all of these into a kind of giddy, uh, excitable book, but she's always in control. And um, another character says, ordinary people can't apply philosophy anyway. Now, as we've said, this novel was published at the same time as The Sovereignty of Good. And I think The Sovereignty of Good is and her own philosophy is always, the moral philosophy is always underpinning her work, but I think perhaps it has much greater expression in this novel. Um, another character says that masochism, sorry, I've written some of these quotes down. Masochism, masochism has strict rules. And I think when you, it's when those strict rules that are understood perhaps by the controller, Julius, start to go a little bit awry that even he can't manage events even he can't determine how they're going to play out and what the consequences are going to be that we have something that's really um a, a kind of morass of emotion that murdoch um never really lets um overwhelm us completely that's probably because she has quite short chapter structures as well and and that we move mm -hmm. very grippingly on with the um, plot and with the events, as Peter has said, it's there's a slow lead in the first part and then the operatic grandeur, the sort of grand guignol effect of the second. Thank you, Catherine. That's, that, that's really interesting. Um, think, thinking about how these ideas are related, not just to the moral philosophy, as you've discussed, but also to, um, to questions of evil. And, and, and I think I want to, want to come back to Peter to pick up um, a couple of elements that we've we've been discussing because Peter I, I think that um, 
your supervisor um, and of course um, you know very important novelist um, Antonio Bayat also taught you a lot about Murdoch's uh, debt to uh, to Much Ado and to Shakespeare for for this and I, I wonder whether that comedic element comes through in the novel. You, you bet. <laughs> As Garth says, it's a tragic comedy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what Antonio taught me was that Julius combines two roles from Much Ado. Uh, the role of, if you remember, Much Ado has a good brother called Don Pedro and a bad brother called Don John. Mm. Don Pedro is, is the good brother, causes uh, Benedict and Beatrice to fall in love with one another. Don John, as the wicked brother, causes Claudio and Hero to fall out of love so that he denounces her as a prostitute in church at their wedding, which is heavy stuff. Um, Julius combines these I mean, in this astonishing scene in, in the um, so-called Prince Regent uh, Museum, where they're hiding behind an Adam portico. Uh, Julius is holding Simon's hand so he can help to adduce this in evidence to try and break up Simon and Axel's relationship. While they're watching um, um, Morgan and Rupert make asses of themselves, by falling in love through through letters that he has purloined and sent and doctored. Uh, it, it, if you describe it in this way, um, it, it seems flimsy. Uh, and it's not in, in the novel. You go along with it, at least, I guess this is a sort of test. Uh, I absolutely agree with Garth. That I think this is her, her best novel, not necessarily her most perfect novel. You go along with it, partly because she's won your sympathy at this point. Mm. Um, and um, it's, it's not the only contrivance that you have to go along with. It's not the only allegorical element that slowly becomes apparent to the reader. It was to the embarrassment of critics, Iris herself, who pointed out that Talis is, is a Christ figure. Julius is a satanic figure. And Morgan, who is divided between the two, represents the ordinary human soul, divided between good and evil and pulled both ways. It, she is also remembering, in, uh, as her biographer, I'm convinced of this, uh, the period of two years, 1954 to 56, when she was divided between Canetti, who lies behind Julius, and her future husband, John, with whom Talis has many resemblances. And in fact, while she was in the middle of writing um, much, uh, uh, beg pardon, uh, defeat, I noticed she wrote to her oldest and closest friend, uh, Philippa Foote, 22nd October, 68, I am no better than the swinish heroine of my current novel who is so concerned with analyzing her own feelings, she never notices the suffering of others. Um, there's that sense of identification, which is not merely between the author and Morgan. I think there's an identification she feels with all her characters, um, slightly less successfully, I think, with Axel and with Rupert, 
but to some degree with all of them, uh, which carries the thing off. Leonard in this allegorical structure is God the Father, who sees that the whole thing went wrong from the, part, from the very beginning. Uh, the chapter where he discourses on the book of Job mm. makes that clear, if nothing else does. He's also, I'm probably the only person old enough to remember Steptoe and Tongue. Do you remember? No, that? I vaguely do. Oh, <laughs> I remember it the yeah. second time around. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, she maybe never, the second time. <laughs> yeah. she, she had no telly at all, but I think someone must have shown her one episode because he's unmistakably like Steptoe the father. Wil Len. Wilfred Ramble. Precisely so. Yes. Exactly yes. So. yes. And um, yeah, so maybe someone else like take I could I could ramble on for hours on this. No, but, well, well, this this is, this is what the podcast is for. It's to, it's to draw out <laughs> all of these wonderful elements of the ramble and and uh, and entertain our listeners. Um, Garth, let's in, in which case, Garth, let's come back to you because I think there's uh, I'm, I'm sure there's some elements that Catherine and uh, Peter talked about that you'd like to to comment on. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, I too am so fascinated by what feels like the sort of tutelary spirit of Shakespeare hanging over this book. Um, maybe even more intensely than over than over other of Murdoch's books. You know, another kind of revelatory thing for me in trying to think about the book in Peter's biography is the fact that in the years leading up to writing this book, uh, Murdoch undertook a rereading of all of Shakespeare's plays. And yeah. I think that you do feel that here and you feel it kind of structurally. You know, um, something that I think in, in some of Murdoch's lesser novels or in the less successful passages of some of her novels. I mean, there is a kind of dreary psychological notation that can, you know, can become kind of boggy in the book. And here, I mean, that's almost entirely replaced by these incredibly fleet dialogue scenes and by these wonderful ensemble scenes um, that make this use, sort of wonderful comedic use of cross-cut dialogue. And that feels to me like something you know, learned from a new apprenticeship to Shakespeare. And then, um, you know, as Peter was saying, also in the character of Julius, and I couldn't agree more with what Catherine says about, you know, this mage figure that appears in many of, of Murdoch's novels, um, that, you know, in, like, Flight from the Enchanter, I mean, Misha Fox is just never really compelling to me. I mean, it, it, it it feels there the idea of the enchanter kind of notional. I mean, it feels like an idea. Whereas Julius King to me feels like a character. Mm. Um, and there's a way that, you know, to me, well, Much Ado About Nothing, I, I mean, absolutely one feels that here. So the Shakespearean character that Julius reminds me most of is Iago. Um, and the way in which Julius kind of weaves his web of deceit, he uses the same techniques that Iago uses in Othello um, by, you know, locking characters away from each other, by making them feel that it's impossible for them to speak to each other, and then by curating reality, as in the scene that Peter was, was discussing, curating reality in such a way that they come to believe fantastical things. Um, I also agree with what Peter said about how, you know, stripped of the flesh of the novelistic, um, discussing these plot points, they seem very uncompelling, which I think is also true of any Shakespeare play. You strip away, um, you know, the scenic and you know, just the description of the plot seems ridiculous. 
here, to a greater extent than in any of her other novels, I think um, I don't find that it's ridiculous. Like I do follow through almost to the very end, just utterly compelled by what feels like the deep humanity of these characters. Um, and I also think, you know, there is some of the force of the book um, comes from maybe feeling a little bit the kind of urgency of the autobiographical. And Peter was talking about the relationship with Kennedy and Julius as a kind of stand-in for Kennedy and, and Talis as a stand-in for John Bailey. Um, I also think, I mean, to me, some of the really electrifying scenes are when um, you know, Rupert, who has been working for years on a book of philosophy, the points of which very often strong, bear a strong resemblance to The Sovereignty of Good, which Miles, as you said, was published the same year as A Fairly Honorable Deceit. And, you know, Julius, not just Julius, Axel too, but Julius most dramatically just utterly shreds this book. I mean, you know, submits ideas that I think are deep convictions of Iris Murdoch's to the most lacerating ridicule and critique. And in the novel, that critique is allowed to be convincing. And there's something just thrilling to me in that, um, and something that I admire very much, that sort of, you know, Iris Murdoch is submitting herself to her own um, strongest critique. And I think, you know, the force of those scenes comes from for me, in my reading, that autobiographical charge. Indeed, and and uh, of course, Rupert's treatise gets torn and <laughs> literally torn up, doesn't it? We we never get to read it. We <laughs> well, we we've got the problem of good to read. Yes, yeah. that's right. And and of course, the same kind of thing happens with um, with Marcus in Time of the Angels as well. He's writing something abandoned. Yeah, he abandons his Platonic treatise. Yes, in, indeed. I, yes. So she's got I, four. I, doing I wanted this. to agree with with Garth about Iago. Uh, I noticed that when I was first reading it, um, I read Cymbeline, which has a, a a comic Iago called Iachimo, the little Iago, and uh, uh, and he, he he's also um, uh, com compelling. Um, uh, on this reading over the last two days, it's blindingly obvious, I suppose, as soon as it's pointed out, that Julius leaves his flat in Brook Street, uh, having locked up a naked girl, and <laughs> comes back after the opera and finds a naked boy. It's pure Shakespearean <laughs> comedy, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's so much a forerunner, The Black Prince, in that way, and that not only because of that is also a Shakespeare-influenced novel, um, but in the changing of costume and the kind of gender fluidity and the changing of persona. I think Morgan is um, Julian uh, in the, the young girl in, in the... Um, Black Prince is considerably younger than Morgan, but nevertheless has the same kind of androgynous name, uh, is, is described very much as Morgan is described in Fellow Defeat as a kind of face a bit like a bird, a bird of prey. Um, Murdoch is so, um, she convinces us so well of others' appearances and how they look both to themselves and to the reader. But it's, it's so very detailed. Um, and I think that uh, 
so while Morgan is very much a, can be, is a very sort of, can be spread as a quite flimsy and dislikable character. I think also that there are other elements in the book that perhaps we can read into more. She has, she's had a, she's terminated a pregnancy and I think a lot of what's happening with her might be some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder in a way, um, that she is incredibly flighty and she wants the great love and she wants the dizzying heights. But I also think she's incredibly traumatized as well by not only her relationship with Julius, but the, that, you know, what happens uh, at the end of it too. I mean, Murdoch needs her to be flighty for the plot also. I was mm, noticing absolutely. this morning that if she's to convince us that, um, that Morgan could instantaneously or very rapidly at least start to fall in love with her brother-in-law, with Rupert, then she needs to persuade us. Uh, this is not to, to um, mitigate anything you've said. I, I agree with it all and it's an interesting perspective. She needs to show us Morgan falling for Peter, Morgan falling for this person, for that person. She needs, to, as it were, to demonstrate her instability, if you see what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. She needs to demonstrate it more than we need to be told about it by other characters. Right. Because we are constantly and, told about it. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it does seem to me, you know, I mean, trauma and buried trauma is so important in this novel, you know? Um, I mean, something that somehow I always forget um, and then am, am struck by anew with each rereading of the book is the story of Talis's sister. You know, this, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the books kind of possibly, I think kind of beautifully nuanced supernatural elements, which is the, the appearance to Talis of this spectral figure that is his sister whom he tells people died of polio. And then only at the end of the novel to Julius does he reveal that actually she was raped and murdered, that um, you know, she suffered a, a violent death that has clearly marked him and traumatized him. There's of course Julius's past, which, and I, I would love to hear from you guys how you feel about this. I have always, one of the elements of the novel that has always provoked kind of the most skepticism for me is the sudden revelation that Julius um, you know, was in a concentration camp and is a survivor of the Holocaust, as a, you know, which to me kind of um, in a slightly cheapening way provides a kind of explanation for his malice as though, you know, I, I miss the, what feels to me like the courage of just allowing motiveless malignancy, um, you know, instead providing a kind of explanation. And then the other, you know, trauma, maybe trauma is too strong a word, maybe not, but a character who I am more fascinated by with each rereading um, is the son, Peter. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the extent to which you know, he, I mean, in some sense, it's a kind of wonderful representation of just a very normal adolescent. I, I guess, I don't know if he's still a teenager, he's in university, but, you know, a, a sort of adolescent character in rebellion, questioning all of the values of his parents. But then he is also, I mean, you know, what Morgan does to him is terribly cruel. And one can imagine, you know, that experience of of being made to love, being being played with in this way, as um, and then of course 
obviously losing his father by the end of the book that I mean that this is also going to mark him as well. I think what's interesting about Peter who I think it's not that he's forgotten about but he is an accessory in the novel and I think as you say that he it's really only Talis who sees how how disturbed Peter is not or how potentially disturbed he could be by events and I think as if you haven't read the novel before there might not be that death we have a very impressionable young man who as Garth has said is 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 very much manipulated by Morgan by Julius and he's never really the first thought of Hilda and Rupert when um their marriage begins to um to to suffer this crisis either so um I think these lesser characters and again uh, the wonderful amazing depiction of uh, the characterization of Leonard uh, are just as intrinsic aren't they to to the whole to the whole plot Peter is wonderful yeah and Leonard you're right is wonderful too and and to me kind of formally wonderful in the novel I mean his the verbal texture of his rants is different from anything else you know to me it's it's almost Thomas Bernhardt enters the novel in those scenes it's wonderful yeah, I think it's also very brave because he, I mean, obviously it's of the time and there are some racist tropes that are uncomfortable to read now. But again, she's also examining the period and the London of the period. There's that tiny scene where um, there's the young Sikh man who comes to live in Talis's chaotic house, rents a room, and he suffers from being, you know, abused. At, he's a bus driver because of his, of his religion and because he wears a turban. And then there's this kind of comment uh, towards the end of the book where, um, oh, he's, made, he's, you know, he's, he's aligned now with his male fellow uh, bus drivers to prevent women becoming bus drivers. It's kind of, right. it's that kind of very interesting kind of sort of satire, but, but note on assimilation. And, and again, London, she writes so amazingly about London. We are, we are in the London of that time but we're also in London it's very recognizable the the people who aren't important in this book the the you know the whole population of a city there's one uh, passage where they're described as I think um, something like colorful shadows uh, that are just streaming past uh, and the, the prince sort of as the backdrop to these these principal characters who are of course playing out in in front of all this um, civic uh, this city Yes, it, it, it's wonderful. And um, I know um, one of our earlier podcasts was on um, Murdoch, Murdoch Land and, and London. So um, interested listeners might want to um, go and have a listen to that. I'm, I'm really interested, Peter, on your thoughts about um, the exposure of, um, of Judas as being in the concentration camp and how that affects yeah, um, your, your reading of the novel. I thought you might like to comment. Well, I was thinking about that. Um, it was much criticised. I think yes, David, yeah. David Lodge, among others, took exception to it. It was thought sensational and melodramatic. It, it derives, uh, it, you, well, uh, I'm, I'm party pri, as they say. So I'm, she, she gets this out of her reading of Simone Weil, who writes about an affliction, uh, it's usually translated in English, le malheur in, in French, who argues that most of us pass suffering on and if we suffer acutely that gets passed on. Auden after all observed this in 1st of September 1939, I and the public 
know what all school children learn, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Uh, this is what she's trying to suggest. I agree with Garth that it's over allegorical in a way, um, and it's too schematic, it's in a way too neat. But these two revelations happen side by side. She is trying to point to, to Vey's view of what distinguishes the good man from the less good man mm. is, 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 is that ability to, um, to digest and, and, and not hit back, as it were. Um, there was yes. something that I wanted to say and it's gone out of my brain. Yes, and we get that very strong sense that, um, as you say, the, this allegorical representation of, of, of Judas and Talus of being, being in sort of universal conflict um, and their recognition of each other, and of course, yeah. and, and Julius being allowed to, to go at the end of the novel, uh, Murdoch allows him to go to Paris and to, yes. you know, to get tickets to the opera, and, and, and sort of can, like like the uh, the devil in the book of Job to to continue to walk the earth. Yeah, well very said. Very strange ending. Very strange. Well said. I mean, there are some allegorical elements that one can notice once they've been pointed out, and they don't matter significantly. Um, like, for example, um, when Talis pulls all of Morgan's <laughs> possessions from Ladbroke Grove to Fulham, which is a long way, on a handcart. This is the Station of the Cross. <laughs> yes. Or cool. when he damages his palm, opening uh, a bottle of, of lager for uh, visiting Julius. And of course, he doesn't have a bottle opener, so he stabs his hand. With, with a screwdriver. This is the stigmata. So it's full of little yeah. allegorical asides like that, which I don't think matter. Uh, many of us don't even notice them. But somehow the revelations about um, what happened to Talis's sister, which is also what happened, not identical, but is analogous to what happened to Peter Sayward's sister in Flight from the Enchanter, by the way. They're both based, in my understanding, on uh, Franz Steiner, whose sister died at 14, I think of TB, and, and he was haunted for life by it. So I, I, I think the novel is big enough and has so much going on in it that one can forgive these, uh, a, a certain melodramatic crudity there. Um, at the end, yeah. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And of course, she said in interview. She said in interview, didn't she, that she, um, you know, you, you can enjoy them just the story, but if you if you picked yeah. up on these elements that she put in, so much the better. They exactly. Matter, yeah. when, when John Bailey asked her what she was up to in her novels, very early on in their married life, she said, "Well, I, I want to write good stories that uh, will engage the reader, but also to provide something something more than that." For, for, for the readers who think. I, I like Garth's uh, introduction enormously, uh, and I wanted to put in a plug for it. Philip Hemsher did an introduction to an earlier paperback in which he accuses her, it's a very, very serious accusation of being insanely readable. <laughs> I don't know how one can ever recover as a novelist from being thought or a writer being thought insanely readable. Hensher uh, <laughs> doesn't know how to read. He accuses her of mixing up, of forgetting that she's got a Pakistani family 
and converting it into a Sikh family. He simply hasn't read the book properly. Book two, chapters five and 11, make quite clear that Talis has both lodgers in his house. Right. Ah. It was more than what one downstairs, that's the Sikh, and one upstairs, that's the Pakistani. But this was more than Henshaw could cope with. Mm. I think it's a good, good point to bring Garth in and, and ask, ask him to talk a little bit about the introduction. And uh, how, how was that experience actually um, writing, writing that, Garth? Well, it was wonderful. You know, as I say, I first read Iris Murdoch uh, 20 years ago and sort of ran through all of the novels. Um, and then the two that I sort of kept close with me over those next decades were The Bell and A Fairly Honorable Defeat, which I think are probably my two favorites. And I actually taught A Fairly Honorable Defeat. For seven years, I was a, a secondary school teacher. And in a 10th grade British lit survey, um, I would teach A Fairly Honorable Defeat after teaching Othello. Um, and, uh, you know, with each rereading sort of confirmed my sense that it was actually really a very great novel. Um, and then for the introduction, I had the chance to go back and reread a great number. I didn't quite read all of the novels again, but, I, you know, a great number, probably 20 of the novels. Um, and it was, you know, it was uh, wonderful to return to them as a novelist. I mean, one of the surprises to me of, of starting to write fiction pretty late in life, in my, in my 30s, um, is the way that it changes my reading of fiction. And in the case of A Fairly Honorable Defeat, hugely increased my admiration for it. I mean, just the ability to sort of see a little more um, the formal innovation, the sort of way that the book is hinged together. Um, I think it's just masterful. I mean, I think it's masterful as a machine, you know, I think its parts work incredibly well together. And then I think it's, you know, I do think it's a profound book about love and, um, and a profound book about what it means to stand in an ethical relation to other human beings. And, um, you know, I mean, something Catherine was talking about, which is just, you know, the, the canvas of the novel, you know, just how, how big it is, how much of the world it takes in. You know, many of Murdoch's novels, including novels that I love, like The Bell, um, have a kind of claustrophobic feel, you know. I mean, she gets at things through concentration and through, like, you know, putting characters within walls and sort of letting the pressure build. This doesn't do that, you know. I mean, it ranges all over London. And um, I find that thrilling. And I do find thrilling to go back also to something Catherine was talking about. And I'll, I'll ask Peter and Catherine both to um, draw on their expertise to correct me, but I can't think of another Murdoch novel in which sort of heterogeneity and race are so present. And I, I think especially of what is one of my very favorite scenes in the novel, which is um, the scene, I think it's in a Chinese restaurant, yes. where, um, where Simon is, is waiting for uh, the others to join him. And he sees a Jamaican man being harassed by a group of kids, you know, harassed in racist terms. And it's the first moment, and it's such a, it's such a surprise and such an extraordinary kind of explosion of sweetness for me, where, you know, Simon, as he tells himself, don't do anything, you'll just, you, there's nothing you can do. He puts the menu in front of his face, 
And then in an act of utterly unconscious heroism, he is on his feet telling them to stop. It's just um, so moving. But the presence of non-white people in this book, um, you know, as, as, and the kind of constant presence in uh, Leonard's rant, in Talis, you know, Talis's dealings with the neighbors in that scene in the Chinese restaurant, um, is to me, I, am I right that that's unique in Murdoch's novels? Uh, well, I think people would know that better than me. Uh, it, it, it's de definitely unusual. And maybe it should be added that it's Talis who gives the knockout blow. <laughs> Absolutely, the saint, that's right. This is a Jesus who's, who, who isn't frightened of, of knocking somebody else out. Uh, yeah, it's a really important moment, I think, for um, as you're as a reader to to see Talis acting in that way. Very much so. Yeah, I, I want I, to ask. I, I'm curious. Uh, uh, I think probably all three of us, all four of us, agree that this is a tragic comedy. When I read it, and poor old Rupert ends up in his swimming pool, I feel bad. Sorry. Like the hedgehog. <laughs> like the hedgehog, like the bumblebee at the beginning. Um, I feel sad, but uh, Rupert hasn't, I, I don't feel grief. I, I think the comic elements in the last analysis are, are, are more brilliant than, 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 than the tragic. But what do you feel? I don't, no, I don't feel grief either. I, I felt... Um... He's such a pompous ass. It's difficult to say that it, I'm glad it was Rupert, isn't it? <laughs> I'm you glad know, it was I, Rupert and not Simon, for example. And not Simon, absolutely. I, and I, I, I would weep for Simon in the pool. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. was a very frightening scene. And again, I think some of the heroism that uh, Garth and we've just talked about in the Chinese restaurant came forth in that pool scene where he just Brilliant. pushes him in. He pushes him in and then, of course, people you know, the rest of the characters don't know what's occurred. They don't know about the bullying. I think it's also interesting that, you know, we're talking, just to go slightly back to the uh, the um, concentration camp issue and that schematic nature of it as well. It seems to me that it's, do we have to find a reason for Julius's evil, if that's what he is, you know? Um, his, I think you called him, Peter, in your biography, a professional outsider and, um, does that have to be, I wonder whether there has to be a reason for that. It, in the, throughout the book, we never... Well, we've been given one, whether we wanted it or not. Yeah, absolutely. But throughout the book as well, we never have Julius's take, do we? He's always, until the end, where we see what he does in Paris, but we never have a chapter that's Julius. I, um, it's an interesting I point. I feel more inwardness, I, I feel Julius's inwardness more than I feel Axel's, actually. Uh, Iris did write again to fill up a foot in the, in, in the throes of composition she said I'm growing increasingly fond of my demon <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think you can feel that I think yeah. you can feel her, her delight in his wit uh, as God says it's a wit that's often destructive but uh, she's enjoying herself in creating him Oh, when we see that, Ru when he see him in Rupert's dressing gown, and <laughs> that scene, Rupert comes downstairs and Julius is in his dressing gown and he, in, in Rupert's, you know, drawing room, drinking right. Rupert. It's just a complete takeover, isn't it? it you, can, yeah. you can actually sense that maybe Julius would have 
further designs on Hilda, for example. I mean, he, he, he is very brilliant, uh, uh, as has already been said, at manipulating others. He, he really does get to know them and their weak points. And mm. he's, he's cunning. He's, he's well, he, he's a believable demon. Yes, especially in the scene with the pink teddy bear. Oh, God, that's that wonderful. Oh. That's so brilliant. Yeah, you know, it's not, it, it isn't the first teddy bear used to humiliate in, in Murdoch. The first is in a severed head, but this one is bigger and pinker. <laughs> I love so wonderful Simon. device. Yeah, I love Simon's internal fury. And that was one of the comic elements as well, isn't it, of the book? It's just kind of the way he his fury with the dinner that's burnt or, or those, those scenes in the flat with Axel and, and Julius and, and also the Talis that he can't say anything, but he, you know, he's thinking. Wonderful. Thinking. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. You know, for me, I mean, Julius, you know, another thing that makes him so compelling is that he is the artist figure in the book. He's the exactly. author in the book. I mean, he refers at one point to his instincts as an artist, you know, as he's manipulating these characters and creating a narrative with them. I mean, he's writing a novel. And exactly. there's a way in which, you know, I actually don't see Julius as malevolent. You know, if anything, I see him as bored. You know, I see him as, mm -hmm. as in some way kind of unequipped with a certain kind of um, moral apparatus or, or ethical apparatus that we usually expect in people. Um, which fits with, you know, the, to me, the more credible element of his backstory, which is that he spent the last however many years developing chemical weapons, you know. Um, Ger now, germ warfare. That's right, germ warfare, that's right, biological weapons. And, um, you know, and he's now, he's between jobs and he's bored and that he does this to pass the time and to amuse himself and I agree, you know, uh, Peter, what you were saying about, um, you know, the fact I do think Axel is the only of these characters who does not have a point of view section. Yes. Um, we do, you know, the book ends with Julius's point of view. Um, you know, the, the sort of book, the book ends by opening a door into Julius's mind. Yes. And Julius gets the last words, which are the words of a comedy. They are, life was good. Yeah. So I, mean, could, I find could, that so compelling. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you rightly say that he's writing a novel, but the kind of novel that he's writing is, a, is of course, an Irish novel. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, he's, he's, he's subjecting the characters to the kind of um, firestorm that, uh, that you get in uh, A Severed Head. There's a wonderful moment in the, that final dialogue between him and Talis, when he says, you do concede that I'm an instrument of justice. Yes. Rupert died of vanity. And it's very moving to me. Talis simply says nothing. He passes yes. on. I think Talis is extraordinary in that final scene. And I don't mean yes. really kind of Christ-like way, but it, just in the way that, as well as the way that he handles, Julia seems to need to confess to him Yes. This happened obviously before, doesn't it? When he tells Julia, uh, Talis exactly what he's done. Yes. And, and Talis says, we must intervene. But Talis doesn't judge in that way, does he? He, he? he says at the end, okay, he takes some money from him. But Julius, Talis isn't Julius's um, 
puppet to be manipulated, really. Not and hmm. certainly not anymore. He he tells him to go and he goes. I think it's yeah. there's almost an equality there, really, isn't there? O almost what? Sorry. An equality between the two characters. Very much so. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and I, I would agree. As we're coming towards the the end of our time together, I just like um, some final f reflections from each of you, Catherine. I'm I'm going to come to you first because um, I know something else you'd like you'd like to discuss is to really put this novel in context with uh, the nineteen with nineteen seventy. What else was being published at the time, and perhaps you know, maybe a comment upon how important and and uh, maybe even revolutionary in some regards um, this novel is. Yeah. So so. Other big novel for me uh, that was published was uh, it's a novella. It's Muriel Sparks' *The Driver's Seat*, uh, which was really about her crisis of faith, um, her own crisis of faith, and uh, and and the world, a very nihilistic view of the world in that book. And I think we see some elements of that in Julius and also in Leonard. In a way, I see them as <laughs> sort of different facets of of that same person, Leonard's had a much more impoverished and difficult life, but he, he basically, he sees that the world is no good in a way, just as Julius does. Ju mm. uh, Julius just has more power perhaps to um, um, money and uh, education with which to, to, to manipulate his vision, I would say. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. Just in terms of, I was dazzled again anew, and I think that's what always strikes me with rereading re most of the great murder novels about the ingenuity at play and how that, just like the characters in the book, you are drawn into this drama and you are drawn into fighting for these emotions and for these relationships and for these people. I think it's a stunning achievement. Yes, I'd absolutely agree with you, and, and 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 agree with all of you. I think this is one of her her best. I, I always feel that it's between this and the Black Prince for um, for her greatest novel, personally. Um, yeah, and um, I suppose I'd, I'd also like to um, sort of suggest that if people haven't read this um, before, then um, obviously please do um, pick up the version um, with with Garth's introduction because I think that really does give a very good flavour of what to expect as well as of course this podcast. So Garth coming to you for your final thoughts um, and also I, I'm interested to know if um, your earlier reading of early reading of Murdoch had a um, an influence on the development of your own writing. Well that's an interesting question and I, I, I never feel really equipped to um, to answer questions like that. I mean certainly Murdoch's thinking had a huge influence on me and continues to have a huge influence on me as a kind of thinking that I think treads a very fine line between, you know, um, a kind of uh, agnostic, you know, um, or it treads a line between sort of theism and Platonism in a way that um, makes elements of those worldviews available to me. Um, you know, I mean, certainly reading The Sovereignty of Good was an early confirmation of a sense that I had, you know, as someone, you know, equipped with a devotional temperament, but um, without a bearable object of devotion, mm. um, that art could be such, a, such an object. Um, and I felt immensely grateful for that. And um, so that, I mean, is was just crucial, not not 
maybe not so much to me as a as a writer of novels, but just to me as a human being trying to, you know, um, make one's way in the world. And I'll also say, you know, something that um, I love about this novel and I love about teaching this novel now is how it complicates maybe some over easy notions we have about um, what it has meant in the last 50 years to write queer relationships and um, the, what was possible when. So I, was, I am still flabbergasted every time I remember an essay published, I think in 2016, 2017, by a very fine American writer named Matthew Griffin, who published a really fascinating book called Hyde, in which he argued that, you know, only recently had the not just the representation of kind of durable, morally serious gay relationships, but also those relationships themselves become possible, as though queer people had waited for state sanction um, to build these kinds of relationships or to make art about these kinds of relationships. And, you know, in my response to that, you know, I pointed to other books, but also to this one, you know, that 50 years ago, in 1970, I mean, of course, queer people didn't wait for state sanction to have these kinds of marriages. And the fact that Murdoch knew that, and that Murdoch, I mean, even though, while she had, we know, relationships with women, I mean, even though her primary relationship, you know, was a fairly, well, I won't say conventional marriage, but a heterosexual marriage. <laughs> you know, the fact that she was um, invested enough, affectively, emotionally invested enough in queer culture to take seriously, first of all, to see that queer culture is not monolithic, to see that gay men come in all sorts of varieties, and then to imagine the possibility of what two very different queer cultures, the gay male culture of Alex, and of Axel, and the gay male culture of Simon, what they might make together. I just, I find that wonderful and I love the way it troubles easy narratives about progress. That's, that's wonderful, thank you. I'm just, I'm just thinking back to um, my first reading of Cleanness um, earlier in the year, um, not just the, um, the dialogue material in, the, in, those, in those vignettes that you write so well, but also the, uh, the experience of living in the city. It, 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 that, that reminded me in some way it had some links to how I, I perceive Murdoch writing London, so I, I, I could see that, uh, maybe not an influence, but I could certainly see work, working in, in, a, in some particular way there. Uh, Peter, oh, it makes me immensely happy to hear you say that. Thank <laughs> you. Not that well, I'm, I'm glad, um, because I, I think it's a wonderful, a wonderful book, and I think everybody should buy it. Um, but I'm biased, perhaps. Um, Peter, coming to you, too, I think, for the, uh, for the final word. Um, of course, um, I think there are there are links as um, as well between um, a fairly honourable defeat and and your recent publication, Family Business, aren't there? So perhaps you could reflect on the novel and also perhaps um, on your own life and your own life writing. Oh, golly, <laughs> I, I I wanted can I bypass that for the moment? Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to read a short passage from chapter seven of book one, which is Morgan. That'd be lovely. How very peculiar one's mind is. There's no foothold in it, no leverage, no way of changing oneself into a responsible just being. One is lost inside one's own psyche. It stretches away and away to the ends of the world 
and it's soft and sticky and warm. There's nothing real, no hard parts, no center. Now, this is quoted verbatim in a book by Nina Coldhart, who's an important Buddhist psychotherapist, in a book called Slouching Toward Bethlehem. Uh, she's commending the, the, how, how Murdoch can talk about things that no one else can talk about, how she combines head and heart. I mean, I think one of the pleasures of Fairly Honorable Defeat is you're reading someone who's highly intelligent and you mm -hmm. trust that intelligence. And it's visible all the time, but you're also in the hands of someone who, whose head and heart are connected in some way. I don't know if I'm making sense here. No, you are, absolutely. I am to myself, at least. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I, the, the, it occurred to me that the, this might be a, a, a possible way to end. Uh, she, I think she's a major intellectual figure. I think her philosophic reputation is in some ways bigger in North America than it is in, in, in the United Kingdom. Of course, this whole question of how the philosophy gets into the novels and what, what, what's it doing there at all is, um, is never going to end, I don't think. But I liked Nina Coldhart's celebration of this. And it reminds me that this is, as I think both Garth and Catherine have differently said, is a very, very big novel. Indeed, it has a small court, but it has huge ramifications, as it were. And I think that's a lovely, uh, lovely place to end. And I'm sure all of us would um, would recommend picking up this novel um, and uh, and and uh, reading it, even if you've read it before. Give it another go. So my thanks to Catherine Taylor, to, to Garth Greenwell, and of course to um, Peter J. Conradi for what has been a fantastic hour of discussion about a wonderful novel. And my thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>